We're in Exodus chapter 12, continuing this journey. As I mentioned, have your Bibles or your devices, or you can just listen along. I'm not going to read all of 12. There's a number of uh, repetitions here, as, there, as we've become accustomed to in this story. Um, I will try to highlight where I am skipping on to the next section or a next verse by calling that out. This is the Passover, Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Take note of that. God is doing a new thing. A new beginning is happening for his people. So tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each one is to take a lamb for their family, one for each household. Down to verse 6. Take care of this lamb until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they are to eat the lambs. And that same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with the bitter herbs and the bread made without yeast. A number of further instructions, skipping down to verse 11. This is how you are to eat this meal, with your cloak tucked into your belt, with your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both humans and animals. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments, for I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on your houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And there's a number of festival instructions that come, skipping to verse 28. The Israelites did just what Yahweh commanded Moses and Aaron. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing throughout Egypt. Verse 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship Yahweh as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and go, but also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise we will all die. Skip to verse 35. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, for they gave them whatever they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. Verse 40. Now the length of time the Israelites had lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. And on they go. Interesting that the Passover is called a plague in this story. That's not how we think of it today. 
It became a celebration, a festival, a feast. Maybe we don't treat it quite the same way as, as we know the event that happened there was celebrated by Jesus with his disciples as they were Jewish, and he made something new out of it, which we celebrate every Sunday that we gather, or at least remember, recognize. But do we consider its roots as a plague? I think there's a redemption story going on. The tenth and final ultimate judgment plague coming on Egypt there's a literary style to these, to these plagues we've seen. They go in groups of three, and there's a lot of parallels that we didn't press into, more having to do with how the plagues are announced, the interaction of Moses and Aaron with Pharaoh and his response, but they are grouped very clearly in three and three and three, and then this final one. One, it was done for a sense of... Uh, memory for God's people as they were in oral tradition culture. And even when this story was written down and edited, no one had their own copies or devices in their hands. So hearing it read and repeated is a reason why there's so much repetition and so much literary structure to it that we often miss. Often we miss it because simply it's been translated from Hebrew into English. Uh, but sometimes we miss it simply the way that we read it and study it with our Western eyes and ears uh, more than these, this Eastern way of writing. And that's really important as we understand the context, as we wrestle with it, as we engage it. Uh, this, this story is meant to be a, a revelation of the big story, of what God has been doing and will do throughout history. We continue to see how it connects to the, the origin story of God's people all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We'll see it again again today, a callback to in what God was doing in newness and renewal for his people. At the time of Jesus, he comes and makes all things new. He's fulfilling the story. He's bringing it clarity. He's not making it obsolete in that sense. It's still vitally important, but it's revealing what always happens. We have a future day that's yet to come, the last days. Some believe we're in those last days and perhaps, depending on what your perspective is, we are. Those last days may last a long time. But it's what will always happen. And we've seen that parallel at the end of the story. Some of, some of the, the plagues that will come or have been foretold in the last days in the book of Revelation have such incredible parallels to these plagues that hit Egypt. Because this is a story of what always happens in this world. And ultimately of who our God is, our unchanging God who will redeem and deliver with justice and righteousness and mercy forever and forever. It needs to be said that this plague is incredibly painful to engage, difficult to engage for so many. It is one of the reasons that many have walked away from their faith in this God declaring, I simply cannot or will not worship or follow a God who kills children. Now, while there's not neat and tidy answers to these reasonable big questions that arise as we engage this story, that's not the way the Hebrews would have engaged it. There's another perspective to see it. And so we step back, as we have throughout these plagues. I said, let's take these 10 plagues at 10,000 feet. 
There's so much to see and to press into, and that's fantastic for a Bible commentary and for a Bible class. I'm taking us on an overview approach. And so being faithful to that approach, I engage this 10th one with discipline because there is truly so much here and it's so vitally important to the fulfillment of the story in Jesus. I'll just briefly touch on that today and pray that we can engage it in the way we are meant to engage it. But let's hold in our mind, first, this story of the plagues, this story of both God's judgment and justice and his deliverance of his people is is meant to be like a microcosm, not meaning that it was not historical for God's people, but it was written later and edited later by a group of Jewish historians and scholars and theologians to proclaim a theological message at parts to even be allegorical. Not that it was not historical also, but that was their primary purpose. And that does not compromise the integrity and the authority of this story. That's not the way that ancient Jews would have thought about it. They would have thought that the group of editors, their elders coming to tell a story of their history with proclamation theologically of who God is all together actually brought strength and weight and authority and inspiration to their text, to their history. It's maybe not the way that we have first engaged this story in some of our traditions, but it's vital to understand the way they engage their story. As I've mentioned and said that phrase that has challenged us a little bit, uh, a story does not have to be 100% historically accurate to be 100% true. Case in point, the parables of Jesus, we would say are 100% truth. They are not meant to be historically accurate. They are meant to be parables. Now, that's not saying that this is a parable, but there is some sense in the way that they wrote their, their history and their story that using hyperbole, using language that would highlight their primary message, and their primary message was, who is God? Who has he always been? Who will he be? What will he do? He is sovereign. He is in control. He will deliver and redeem his people. They will use language to elevate that theme, to say, see, look, see, 100% true, even if not pressed to be historically 100% accurate. That wasn't their first intention. And all that to say, we trust in faith. We've been given and receive exactly what God's intention is for us to have in his story. This plague narrative that maybe happened over the course of weeks or months is like a microcosm of what happens or will happen across history. Here's on display what happens when men persistently harden their hearts against God, against his rule, against his way. This is what happens when leaders and rulers rise into position or are put into position with a hunger and a thirst for power and authority and control, this is what happens. All manner of evil, oppression, abuse. We see that throughout history, not just in Egypt, sometimes even in our own history far too closely. So in this, this is what always happens. And yet, God will not allow it to go on forever. God will bring justice 
and judgment and deliverance and rescue for the oppressed, for the hurting, for his children. That's the answer. That's the big story that is being proclaimed even in this smaller one. God will do it at all costs. While evil and manipulation and control from humanity is a reversal of creation, of God's order, where God gives, creates a perfect world and invites his people to rule with him, alongside him, in the way of his kingdom. And when humanity hardens their heart against that, it undoes his created order. We see that spiral. We see that in the plagues. Chaos starts to reign throughout creation instead of order. And ultimately, it leads to death. There's nothing more severe than death. The plagues have been increasing in intensity, and this final one is ultimately death. Complete separation from God's presence. And that, too, is the big story that is proclaimed. But God will make a way. God will bring and offer life instead of death, or even life through death. And we see its fulfillment in some ways here for Egypt, through the blood of the Lamb, and fast forward to our Savior Jesus, the, redeem the Redeemer of all. Another couple notes on this plague and how it would have been engaged and received by the ancient Hebrews, by the Jews even today, and how therefore we might engage it. Remember that those who are historically an oppressed people will read this story very differently than we who maybe all we have known is being a part of majority culture with privilege, with power, with our own freedom. We know in the history of the Jewish people, not just in the time of Egypt, but throughout their history, they've been an oppressed, enslaved people. And they read this story very differently. Black and African slaves, even in our history, read this story very differently than their white counterparts. They read this story championing the God of Moses, the God who delivers, the God who brings justice, the God who rescues. And so we need to hold that understanding that we, many of us, may only be able to rightly read it through one lens could we grow our perspective and understanding of how it's received. Question, is God sovereign over all, all life, all of his creation or not? That's what's being proclaimed in this story. The resounding answer is he is. We sometimes wonder and question his timing, his ways, but the broad proclamation is he is sovereign over all of life and all of creation. He alone numbers our days. He is over all, from the powerful to the weak, the king to the servant, the slave to the free, to the young and the old. He is over all. The ancient Hebrews would not may have made much of a distinction. They would not have responded the same way we might today to the potential of children, the firstborn dying that night. Right or wrong, that's not the way they would have engaged the story. God was sovereign over all of life. He gives life, he takes it away. 
Life is not a guarantee. It's but a mist. It's fleeting at best. We stumble over it, I think. Although, notice, nowhere in the story does it say children died. Now, hard not to imagine when we think of firstborn, but nowhere in the story does it declare that little children died this night. It speaks of firstborn. Also, we need to notice that when this story says every and all and uses pervasive kind of language like that throughout the land, it is hyperbolic in nature. It's hyperbole. It's, it's, it's meant to be a, a, a pervasive way of speaking, not necessarily a total way of speaking. Case in point, in the plague on the livestock, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 6, it says, the next day the Lord did it. He brought the plague on the livestock, and all the livestock of the Egyptians died. That sounds pretty total, doesn't it? All the livestock of the Egyptians died. But just a few verses later, in the same chapter, 922, in the plague of the hail, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall over all Egypt on men and animals and everything. Why were there animals still? Hadn't they all died? When we come to chapter or to the 10th plague in chapter 12, we see that the plague of the firstborn extends to the animals, the livestock of the Egyptians. They are not all dead. Now, this discrepancy was not missed by this ancient group of editors who are brilliant people. No chronological snobbery here to think that they were unintelligent people and missed these kinds of potential discrepancies. They were perfectly fine recognizing that this language was meant to be hyperbolic. When it says all the land and all the animals, it's pervasive. It's not meant to capture the same way in totality we might use the word all or every. So when the angel of death comes through and strikes all, all households, all the land. We need to understand that the way that they used language was different than the way we use it today. Now, some, one might say one death was enough. One death would be enough for me to say, how could I possibly follow and worship a God of love who kills the innocent? And that's not the question that the ancient readers would have asked. There were no innocent, certainly not amongst the Egyptians. This is justice. This is a justice story, not a vengeance story. Pharaoh had ordered the death of innocent children in the Nile. Pharaoh and all of Egypt stood by to oppress the Israelites in slave labor and to benefit from their labor. There's no one innocent. Collectively, as a nation, they were one in this judgment. What they had perpetrated, God is now bringing back in retribution. Justice is being done. That's the story that's being proclaimed. That is sometimes difficult for our Western ears to receive and to hear. Perhaps one more note to make. When the angel of death. How, how do we perceive the angel of, angel of death? Now, perhaps you've seen movies or shows about the exodus. Certain images come to mind. 
even the cartoon Prince of Egypt. And so maybe we're skewed in how we view this angel of death, but I think maybe, again, in our Western ears and eyes, we think of a warrior with a sword striking. But I would like to present that lightning also strikes. The language is pretty intentional, that use of the word that we have seen throughout. I would like to present an alternative, that the force and the power of God's nature is dangerous by nature. What if the angel of death was more like a lightning strike, a wave of energy through the city? Not all who are struck by lightning die, but many do, because it is dangerous by nature. When lightning strikes and thunder rolls, it sounds angry. We attach that emotion to it. But it need not be angry or wrathful. It may be neutral. By nature, it is powerful and therefore dangerous. And that storyline actually runs pretty consistently through the scriptures. From the Garden of Eden, when God created a perfect order where he dwelt with his people, there was no separation. There was no danger in his presence. His creation was naked and unashamed, unafraid, dwelling with him. When his creation willingly chose death over life, for they had been warned, do not eat of this tree or you will die. And they chose yet to partake. God's presence somehow became a danger to them. We see that story run through the scriptures. To the proxi- getting into the proximity of God was a dangerous thing. It may even cost us our life, even in our own story. When Moses asks to see God, no one may see me and live. And perhaps the clearest picture of this, and there's many examples, is at the tabernacle itself, which will later be built in our, from this story. When they build the tabernacle, there's a most holy place where God's presence will come and dwell. The cloud of light, the cloud of fire by night is the image of his presence, and it will dwell in that most holy place, that innermost place of the temple. And no one could enter that curtain or they would die. That doesn't mean that God was wrathful or vengeful. It means he was powerful and therefore dangerous to be in that proximity. No one could draw near, except one day a year, the high priest would sacrifice an animal and take some of its blood and carefully place that blood upon himself and on the altar as he entered in by the blood of the sacrifice. He could draw into the presence of God and have his life spared. See, there's a story that runs through the entire story where God is not content to, be dwell up, to dwell apart from his people forever, and yet his presence is often dangerous and powerful. Many have pointed to the, the sinful nature that we have, that we simply cannot draw into his presence because nothing unholy or impure can be in his presence. But God made a way through the blood of the lamb on that first Passover, through the blood of bulls and goats on that day of atonement, and ultimately through the blood of Christ Jesus himself, all can enter in. And as Jesus hung upon that cross, 
with blood dripping down his side and from his head, from the crown of thorns. That image should have stood forward for all Jews and now for all Christians forever. He is the doorway. He is the Passover lamb. He's the doorway to God, but he's also the door of God's release into the world. For at the moment of his death, that curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom like two giant hands reaching from heaven, rent that curtain apart, not just to say all now can enter in, no more need of eternal or endless sacrifices of bulls and goats because once for all the lamb is slain, the way is pure and open to all who would come by the blood. Yes, and amen, but it's also a release of God's presence into the world, fulfilled on Pentecost when his spirit is poured out upon his people and upon his church. And what's the image that is seen in that moment but fire coming upon his people and not consuming them, giving life in the spirit, not death. This is the fulfillment of this story this ancient story. So as we engage this story, God, give us ancient ears, give us understanding of your, as your people would have received it. I present an alternative of the angel of death, of power, of God's, representing God's presence coming through the land and striking like lightning, sparing only those with the blood upon their doorway who have trusted, who have trusted the promises of God through his servant Moses. How can we receive God's presence in us when no longer do we need to sacrifice an innocent animal and put his blood upon our doorways once a year? Jesus made that new. Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now we're not told step by step how to do that, but an open heart, an open door unto God, unto Jesus, is the opposite of a hardened one, a closed one that we see repeatedly on display in Pharaoh. Anyone who has ever prayed, God, do I have an open heart to you? I want to have an open heart to you. A soft heart. I feel it's hard at times. I want it to be soft, God. You are opening it unto the Lord. For the one with the hardened heart never prays a prayer like that. And it's right to wrestle. Lord, what's the state of my heart? I feel it hardening. Lord, help me soften. Would you come and dwell with me anew, afresh? Holy Spirit, come. Come upon me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you, you yourselves, are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? That's speaking to the church. We now, as his people, have replaced the temple. We are his presence in this world. He dwells amongst us only possible by the blood of the Lamb. Paul also says in Ephesians 2.13, Now in Christ, 
You who once were far away have been brought near through the blood, through the blood of Christ. And many have asked, why blood? Why not wine? Same color, much more enjoyable, still hard to get out of carpet. Why the blood? And there's been a rich debate about this. At minimum, blood represents life, the life force within us. And when, that, when our first parents chose to partake of the fruit that led to death, they willingly brought in death, their lives were now on a trajectory to death. Ultimately, God not being satisfied would make a way back instead of demanding their blood, their life to return to his presence, he gives his own. He comes as the lamb and the blood of the lamb makes the way. Still required, a life to be given. Once and for all though, in Christ, his blood shed makes us a people marked by the blood. When Jesus sat with his disciples the night before he was crucified, they were celebrating this ancient Passover meal. And here's what he said, according to Luke chapter 22, verse 15. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. It was not a coincidence that it was the night before his crucifixion and they were celebrating the Passover. Jesus is linking these two events forever, inextricably, in their minds and hopefully in their hearts. I have longed, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. I think many believe that that has not yet happened. While much of his kingdom has come through his resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit, and there is some debate on that, there's many who believe that he is waiting to eat of the Passover meal in the, fest in the festival and celebrate with all of his children. He is still waiting for that to take place. I like that reading. I like that interpretation. I think it is very biblically consistent, and it inspires my hope that this meal that we come to is not just a look back to our ancient history and a connection to our, our past that roots us in something so much bigger than ourselves, which is vital. We're told to remember, but it points us forward to something so much more, if that could be even possible. This calls us back to our salvation, our oneness with Christ, our life in him, and yet we're pointed forward to a feast at the same table with our God. Be inspired by that church. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this, divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now that phrase has become so popular. I mean, it's carved onto the table in the hallway for us. Do this in remembrance of me. I think that's become so common that we can't even hear how striking that would have been for his Jewish brothers at that table. What were they doing? They were eating a Passover meal in remembrance of the Passover. 
God's ancient deliverance, freedom, rescue, and justice. That's what they were remembering. Jesus said, do this now forever in remembrance of me. He could not have been more explicit and clear that he was bringing fulfillment of all of their history to that point, their greatest celebration of God's deliverance. It wasn't diminishing that. It was bringing it into its right understanding in him. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. And now we see him upon the cross, something those first disciples were totally struggling with. Could not even image and picture that but would have been reeling, likely, from these implications of what he was claiming. His blood, the blood of the lamb, his body to be remembered above the Passover. Amazing. How much they understood, how much they grasped at that moment. We know they struggled. We know they abandoned him. We know they fell asleep on him. We know they betrayed him. We know they doubted. And so we are in good company. For anyone who can tell that story and say, I love my Lord Jesus, my friend, my Savior, and yet my faith so often is so small. My turning from him is often so quick, whether in action or in heart and attitude or mind and thought or all of the above, we find ourselves amongst the disciples. But also Jesus never gave up on his beloved friends and redeemed them and restored them and invited them again and again. All of this should have been coming together. John, had al- John the Baptist had already proclaimed Jesus was the Lamb of God right from the very beginning when he entered the scene, John 1, 29. John saw Jesus coming toward him at the river that day and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I wonder how long it took for these light bulbs to go on and these connections to be made of everything Jesus had done and said now fulfilled in his final sacrifice. The lamb who gave his life for ours. Not a lamb slaughtered innocently without a say, but a lamb who came and willingly gave. For far more accurately, according to the biblical story, Jesus gave his life far more than God taking it. Jesus surrendered it for the life of all who would look to him and be under his house, under his blood, open their hearts unto him and draw near to his table forevermore. And this is why we have an open table. That regardless of the depth or the strength or the measure or the length of our faith, that is not what's most important. But the object of the faith for which we turn, the Lamb of God and his blood shed. Let me wrap up with this story from D.A. Carson, biblical scholar and preacher and teacher. I respect much of his work, have been influenced by him. And I just love the way he articulates this. 
I can't do it in the same humor that he does it, so as you hear it, if you want to see him preach it with passion, you can Google it later. He says, picture two Jews by the name of Smith and Brown, remarkably Jewish names. On this day before Passover, the first Passover, they're having a little discussion in the land of Goshen, and Smith says to Brown, boy, aren't you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? And Brown says, well, God told us, God told us what to do through Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb and daubed your two doorposts with the blood and put the blood on the lintel? Haven't you done that? You're all ready and packed to go, aren't you? You're going to eat the Passover, the whole Passover, with your family tonight. Of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary when you think of it. All these things that have been happening recently, you know, the flies and the river turning to blood, it's pretty awful. And now there's the threat of the firstborn being killed, you know. That's all right for you. You've got three sons. I've only got one, and I love my Charlie. And the angel of death, the angel of death is passing through tonight. I know what God says. I I put the blood there, but it's still scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. And the other one responds, bring it. I trust the promises of God fully. That night, the angel of death struck the land. Which one lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because death doesn't pass over on the ground of, or the, of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercise, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. By his blood alone, we are saved, delivered, rescued, offered life instead of death. And in some mysterious way, as we come to the table, we not only remember and receive and partake, we participate in the death and sacrifice of Jesus and the subsequent life, his resurrection life that comes. May it be a participation as we engage it today. May this meal not only connect us with our ancient heritage and remind us of something far bigger than we might ever imagine we are a part of, but may it also give us hope at the coming kingdom of fullness when Christ will come and reign and rule, when the Lamb will no longer be slain but seated upon the throne and we will come to his table celebrating that forever sin and death and evil has been destroyed and vanquished. This, I think, is a good place to leave us in the story. Engaging in God's deliverance and freedom. Respond, church, as you are led, as we sing. Team can come. Come and partake as we do as a regular rhythm every Sunday. Come and partake with our minds tuned, maybe more fully, to this ancient story and what this means for us. Though the understanding of it is not the prerequisite, the depth of faith is not the prerequisite, but the turning to, the drawing near, and the receiving, because the object of our faith, the Lamb of God, has accomplished all. May we pray. God, our Father, Yahweh, who has and will and does deliver 
and rescue and bring justice and judgment in mercy with grace and compassion perfectly in a way that we never could. Forgive us where we have turned. Forgive us where we have read your story and said, another way, God. It should have been another way. Forgive us. May we come humbly to proclaim you alone are God, the one true and holy Yahweh, who has both sent his son and also released his son to come running from heaven to enter in to this world with us, the Lamb of God, who once and for all, whose blood shed becomes the doorway, becomes the sacrifice, becomes the atonement that protects, that saves, that delivers, that redeems. May we engage it this morning anew, afresh, for you are a God who loves to do new things. Do them in our midst today, personally, corporately, for your glory, for our joy, we pray. Amen.